I will be preaching from this alternate setup here tonight. After I saw Mother Karen preach from a sitting position, I realized all the cool kids are doing this now, and I want to be in on the new trend. Um, actually, my back is still causing me some trouble, so I hope you'll forgive me if I sit this one out. At times in my life, I have felt like I'm living the life of a sitcom, as if I'm Marsha Brady or Phoebe from Friends. I had this sense when, as a young woman, my roommates and I were out of automatic dishwasher soap. So I, thinking quickly, uh, substituted liquid dish soap designed for hand washing the dishes. Some of you already see the problem here. I did not. Um, I returned to the kitchen 30 minutes later to find a sea of soap suds covering the kitchen floor. Um, evidently, it was a bad choice. Another time, I was boiling water to make tea and realized I felt very warm. And initially, I was happy about that because it was the winter. We were keeping the temperature low in the house um, to save money. But then I realized I'd somehow set my sweatshirt on fire. <laughs> um, thankfully, I escaped with minimal injury, and the house did not catch on fire. However, sadly, the sweatshirt did not survive. Um, when I moved to Wheaton in 1992 to pursue my doctorate, I continued with my goofy moments um, in drinking it. Commuting to Chicago from Winfield, I had trouble keeping myself awake on my return commute. I can recall waking up to see the Winfield train uh, sign um, at our, my stop passing by my window, knowing once again I'd have to disembark at West Chicago and call my roommate Trudy and see if she could give me a ride home. <laughs> um, tonight's scripture reminded me of another incident during my time of commuting to Chicago for school. Um, I was anxious and stressed. It was my first day. Um, so I was armed with my requisite student backpack. Um, I took the train in and emerged from the train in Chicago, feeling sorry for myself just because I was so anxious and tense. So I decided to splurge on a cup of Starbucks coffee. I knew that would make me feel better. So I decided uh, to get into line at Ogilvy's Starbucks shop. But I was, at that time, hard to believe, a novice to uh, Starbucks and um, also to wearing a backpack. And I was overwhelmed, you know, what is a venti? What's a grande? What's a latte? Would I like my coffee iced or hot? I did not notice the five-foot-high pyramid of ceramic coffee cups stacked on the tile floor of the shop. In a moment of random, unnecessary movement while standing in line, I turned, and with my backpack, knocked the pyramid of cups over. I was humiliated and shocked, and the noise just seemed very loud in that tile shop. Um, the baristas were very kind, I will say, but I left as quickly as I could without my coffee. Um, I guess that the adrenaline that came from that uh, crash uh, supplanted my need of caffeine for that morning, and I didn't need that latte after all. Um, our passage of uh, in Jeremiah for this evening um, includes a commandment from God to Jeremiah. He wants him to purposely draw people's attention with a crash of breaking pottery. It's not an accidental result of lack of spatial awareness, um, but an intentional demonstration of what God would do to Judah as punishment for their worship of other gods. I thought that maybe uh, as a good sermon illustration, maybe I'd come up here and break a coffee cup but I thought maybe the st story of my coffee cup calamity 
would uh, suffice to illustrate the passage without the mess of breaking any glassware up here. Um, but as you may have noticed from our uh, passage tonight, the story of Jeremiah is not a sitcom or even a lighthearted story. It's a story of judgment and justice. It's a story of mercy and redemption. Father Kevin last week did a great uh, job of introducing us to Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. He discussed with us how difficult it is to speak up in a countercultural way, like a salmon swimming upstream fighting the current. At best, it can be embarrassing, even more embarrassing than knocking down a tower of mugs in a coffee shop. But at worst, it can make you enemies and cost you your security, your job, your friends, maybe even your life. Jeremiah was called to speak truth as a prophet in a time of chaos and apostasy, and it was a dangerous calling. I don't think prophets are ever very happy to be chosen. It's hard work. But at this time, the kingdom of Judah was not following God, and many evil practices were infiltrating the community. Idol worship, mistreatment of underprivileged people like widows, orphans, immigrants, and even child sacrifice. Now, from what I know of you, friends of the Savior, there is a strong social justice thread in your lives. I know many of you are committed, most of you are committed to doing uh, good work in the world, working as part of God's kingdom. Maybe you, like me, can think of many other people who need to hear this sermon. Um, however, perhaps you, like me, are not perfect. Perhaps you, like me, are drawn by certain idols, certain societal norms that seem to be justified by the majority. Perhaps you, like me, can be enticed by paths that seem beautiful initially that lead you away from the path of God. We may have something in common with the strain and unrepentant people whom Jeremiah confronted there in Judah in the dump. Or perhaps you, like me, have had or are having moments of conviction in which you are called to speak the truth as a whistleblower for God, or moments where you know in your heart you have to take a stand. Just as Father Kevin preached last week, if so, Jeremiah's words and example can provide some direction for you tonight also. Jeremiah lived in a tumultuous time. The country of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel fell away from the Lord more quickly than Judah and had already been conquered by Assyria before Jeremiah's time. Jeremiah's fellow countrymen and Judah were also strained from the ways of God, and Jeremiah was called to confront them in their sinful ways. Father Kevin told us uh, in vivid terms how difficult the calling it was as he was kidnapped, thrown in a pit, reviled for his words, his life at that time overlapped with the lives of other prophets, including Habakkuk, Obadiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. They were also deputized by the Lord to do extraordinary work in extraordinary times. Jeremiah prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem, and it came to pass in the last years of his life. He lived in a time of destruction and moral devastation. He did not live to see the restoration of Jerusalem and the fulfillment of God's promises. Yet, he continued to serve the Lord and kept the faith. The verses we read tonight in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 19 are chilling. Jeremiah asked, was asked to take elders and priests with him um, for a little talk. We know Jeremiah was from a family of priests, but I am still not convinced that these priests were happy to follow him. 
My dad has a saying, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And I think that these leaders were part of the problem, although, if asked, they probably would have pointed their fingers back at Jeremiah, whom they believed was just stirring up controversy and trouble. I don't think they felt they needed to hear suggestions about how to run the religious community from Jeremiah, this pesky doomsday dude. The trigger for this dramatic confrontation was an action taken by the man who was king at that time, the king of Judah, Jehoiakim. In an act of disrespect, he burned the scrolls of Jeremiah. Now, we all know book burning has never been a sign of health for a country. <laughs> but this was more than an attempt to quash freedom of speech and thought. This was a message of scorn and rejection, but not just a rejection of Jeremiah, but also the word of the Lord. Never a good idea. Since book burning also does not have a good track record for eliminating the messages contained in the books, the king was also unsuccessful in eliminating Jeremiah's message here. We are told that Jeremiah recreated his book with the help of his scribe Baruch, and instead of this scroll destruction resulting in the silencing of Jeremiah, he instead convened this meeting. Following the Lord's directive, Jeremiah invited these church leaders to join him on a short trek southwest of Jerusalem to the Valley of Hinnom through the Potsherd Gate where broken pottery was discarded, just like a dump. This was the place called in Hebrew, Gehenna, which Jesus spoke of. It is the place that gives us the original vision of and word for hell. It was not a nice place to go for a walk. However, the location was not just a dump. It was also the scene of idol worship, the worship of Baal, also the scene of human sacrifice. What did the worship of Baal require? What did it involve? Well, it was a uh, fertility religion. It endorsed and required promiscuity and prostitution. At this time in Jerusalem, the worship practices of Baal also involved human sacrifice. In fact, killing children on the altar of Baal. The horror of it is uh, viscerally chilling, viscerally striking. In obedience to God's call, Jeremiah spoke to these church leaders at the sight of these ungodly practices. Turn with me to your worship folder if you wish to follow along. Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and people of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Listen, I am going to bring a disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. For they have forsaken me and made this a place of foreign gods. They have burned incense in it to gods that neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal, something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. This community, these supposedly God-following Jews, had somehow been drawn into a practice entirely counter to their walk with the Lord. It violated those Ten Commandments at every turn. How did they get there? In my practice as a psychologist, we use CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. We look at how our thoughts dictate our emotions, choices, and behaviors. One concept we use is thinking errors. 
A fancy term for it is cognitive distortions. But really, it's just errors in our thinking. Usually, they help, help us make it okay in our mind to do something that feels good in the short run because the wise thing that will serve us better in the long run requires delayed gratification, and that is much harder to do. I use a thinking error when I say, oh, I really deserve five brownies instead of one because I've been working so hard. Or everyone is driving over the speed limit, so it's fine if I do it also. Or it's not fair, why did I get a flat tire? Everything bad always happens to me. Um, many of our thinking errors are relatively harmless, uh, but if we are committing acts that harm other people or draw us away from the Lord, their impact can be very serious. For instance, but everyone's doing it. Seems fun. Just this one time. I deserve a break or just a little bit of pleasure or just a little bit of relief or it's not really that bad. In my experience, evil acts rarely start as a dramatic change of behavior. Rather, it's a slow and insidious process that proceeds inch by inch, step by step, thinking error by thinking error. These thinking errors serve a protective purpose. They pr protect us from taking hard but correct steps that we'd rather not. And they protect our ego because we have a justification to do what we really want to do. I'm reminded of these very uh, strong words of Soren Kierkegaard. He said, the Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Ouch. <laughs> Felt that one. For the country folk of Jeremiah, who were frequenting the Baal altars, maybe their path away from God started similarly, slowly as a conversation or with curiosity. Following the one real God can be hard. He asks us for obedience and behavior that contradicts the ways of the world, even now. Their thoughts may have started out like this. You know, our religion is so uptight. It would be nice to be with people who are so comfortable with their bodies and sexuality. What can one time hurt? Or... Maybe Baal can give me a little extra insurance for good weather, good crops, good business, good fertility. Anyway, what's wrong with a little extra insurance? For the church leaders, maybe it was more like this. You know, we don't want to insult our supporters, the wealthy ones anyway. It's okay as long as they still pledge allegiance to you with their words. If we embarrass our congregation, they may not return. Best to keep it quiet. Usually, when evil happens, it's not dramatic at its start. It's more like that poor frog in the pot. You know, the one who goes into a cold pot of water and never notices it getting hotter by one degree every hour until it's too late, and then he's cooked. I work with a lot of clients who are in trouble with the law, and they rarely, if ever, start out by saying, I'm going to do something that will harm a victim, myself, and my family, and really blow up my life. It doesn't go that, like that. Instead, they make excuse after excuse, thinking error after thinking error, 
until they are a hot frog getting cooked in a pot of water. How often do we justify our own steps with self-serving white lies that add up to huge misdirection? I find myself thinking of the January 6th hearings in the past couple weeks. Many of the witnesses remind me of Jeremiah. They've been courageous in taking a stand at great personal cost. But I wonder what the difference is between people who decide to speak honestly and the people who choose to cover up the truth. I don't think it's always as stark of a division as we wish. Little lies can lead to big lies and lead us away from where we had said we wanted to be. So now Jeremiah has taken his unsuspecting delegation to the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. And in my mind, I picture it like the land of mortar, you know, smart, dark, grim, smoky, dark, and grim. Even though the leaders were prepared for Jeremiah to speak, I'm sure they were expecting to just kind of glaze over. You know how you do in that class that you're just really not into? Just kind of glaze over and wait for him to stop so they could just get back from their day's activities with a minimal interruption and certainly no change of heart. But God used pottery to command their attention. It's interesting to note that there is a theme of pottery imagery in this book. It begins in chapter 18, where Jeremiah tells the story of how he visits a potter. He says that while there, he gains insight that the Lord is the potter and we are the clay. But in our text today, the focus is not on how the Lord our potter creates and shapes us, but rather how he will destroy his creation in judgment just as a piece of pottery can be shattered. This is a hard word. Due to their refusal to repent, the Lord communicated he would destroy Jerusalem. It is chilling. Jeremiah took a clay jar, just as he'd been commanded to. The Hebrew word used here connotes a kind of clay flask with a long, narrow neck. Not a container like this, but one with a long neck that widens out at the bottom. Most of our bottles today are constructed similarly. Such a clay flat flask was valuable at that time and usually treated with care because as a long-necked piece of pottery was irreparable once broken. The neck was just too difficult to put back together, kind of like Humpty Dumpty of pottery. Once God destroyed Jerusalem, it would not be put back together again by humans. So nevertheless, Jeremiah took a clay flask and smashed it dramatically and loudly. I'm sure it was even more startling to the leaders there than my coffee shop mug crash was to my fellow Starbucks customers. I was just a silly grad student with poor spatial awareness, but Jeremiah's breaking that pottery in that place with those words punctuated a brutal and serious word of prophecy. I think it was shocking and disturbing. I think they wanted to ignore his word, but it rang too true to shrug off. Jeremiah communicated his message of destruction as directed by the Lord. Reminds me of uh, my favorite Anglican priest and poet, John Donne. Therefore, send not to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. He's saying your doom is at hand. As I think of this passage, I wonder, what call might you be trying to shrug off? Are you trying to ignore a smashing of pottery that is ringing in your ears? Is there a compromise that has taken you too far from the line of honesty? Have you elevated your political allegiances, left or right, 
too high in the eyes of the Lord? Or was God calling you to give up a habit or behavior? Has your screen time evolved into hours away from family and responsibilities? Is it taking you to a shrine that distorts fertility into fantasy and takes you from your partner? Is your habit too much time at work or at the golf course? Too much time with video games? Too much time with a Candy Crush game? A lack of discretion with money? Or have you given your heart over too much to resentment that persists and poisons your thoughts again and again? Is there a word God has called you to speak? The list could go on. I invite you to listen to God. How is he calling you? Where is he calling you? Thankfully, this is not the end of the story. The book of Jeremiah is not just about destruction, but about rebuilding as well. Chapter 33 holds another prophecy delivered by Jeremiah about how God will restore Jerusalem. This is something he did not live to see. And I think that this passage in chapter 33, this prophecy is even that much more striking to me as a result. You know, in Jeremiah's day, while the word of death and destruction may have been unpleasant to deliver, may have seemed pretty obvious nevertheless, a no-brainer. He was surrounded by so much evidence of the lack of obedience to God, human sacrifice, promiscuity, cruelty to vulnerable immigrants, widows, orphans. The message of judgment could have seemed pretty straightforward, even if unwelcome. But Jeremiah, often called the weeping prophet, a man called to deliver news of doom and gloom to his community, was also called to speak words of hope. Look at chapter 33 with me. Nevertheless, I will bring health and healing to Jerusalem. I will heal my people and will let them enjoy abundant peace and security. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and will rebuild them as they were before. I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me, and I will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. Then this city will bring me renown, joy, praise, and honor before all the nations on earth that hear all of the great things I do for it. And they will be in awe and will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for Jerusalem. Jeremiah's life is estimated to have spanned from 670 to 550 BC. He lived to see Jerusalem destroyed in 586 BC. The kingdom of Judah fell and the Jews were removed and placed in captivity in Babylon. These exiles, the diaspora, did not return until decades after his death. The temple was not rebuilt in Jerusalem until decades after his death. Even so, he spoke these words of faith. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and will rebuild them. What a gift Jeremiah was given. The vision of restoration, the restoration of Jerusalem. Even more striking is the fact that he was given this hopeful message while he was in captivity with another king of Judah, King Zedekiah. I don't know about you, but I don't usually have my 
hopeful moments when I'm in captivity, and in my case, little C, like for a health issue or something going wrong at work or in my personal life. I can't imagine how hopeful or positive I would have been if placed in prison, even for the Lord. Yet, Jeremiah received God's message, health and healing for Jerusalem, despite the judgment and destruction. He accepted this word from God also and shared it in faith. So, what does this mean for us? This passage, I think, is not just about Jerusalem, but about God's provision of restoration for us through his son, Jesus Christ. It is a message of joy and hope. Although God requires our obedience and compliance, he also offers us redemption, restoration, and renewal once we repent, right? And knowing that we are unable to meet his mark on our own, he's provided a path to salvation through the sacrifice of his son Jesus for us. Unlike the leaders Jeremiah confronted, it is not too late. It is never too late for us to repent. God calls us to follow him and keep his commandments. Always, not just when it's convenient. He is a just judge and asks for our obedience, not just when it's easy. So God is calling us to a reckoning. He is calling us to follow him. And some of us are called to be prophets, whistleblowers, breakers of pottery. Some of us are called to speak truth in dark places. And some of us are being called to come home from dark places where lies have taken us. Come tonight, follow God, return to him, listen to his voice of justice and his voice of compassion. Return to the one who loves you to enjoy his cleansing glory. Repent. Take heart. Amen. <laughs>